This webinar was previously recorded and converted to a listening format. Now, please enjoy this timely and valuable market information from expert commercial real estate investor James Kandasamy and special guests. Welcome to Achieve Wealth through Value Add Real Estate Investing. This is the show where the guru hype is banned and you get direct insights from commercial real estate operators. If you're a passive investor, this show can help you better understand investment opportunities. And if you're an active investor, the lessons from each episode can help you to become more effective in your own deals. Now, here's your host, investor and author, James Kandasamy. Hi, this is James Kandasamy. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I appreciate you. I know I provide a lot of value through this podcast and I want you to share it with your friends, with your families and anybody else that you know that kind of benefit from listening to this kind of content. Go share it through Facebook, through LinkedIn, through Twitter, through Instagram or any other channels that you want to share it because sharing is caring. Thank you. Let's go on with the show. And the third category that we talked, yes. Just to add that, uh, I mean, we have made, we gave an offering to our investors last year, December, first time for ATM machine. And it was very well received by our investor base just because of that. The cash flow it predicts and and until now, it has been very predictable. Every 26th of the month, you know, we get cash flow, but 24.7% of whatever we invested. That's, that's awesome. And looking at the IRR, it's like 19% IRR, right? I mean, over seven years. And it's just hard to get that kind of, IRR investment and IRR is the ultimate uh, investment metrics, right? I know there's many people looking at investment metrics differently, but for me, IRR is the ultimate, uh, you know, uh, measurement. Yes, for sure. For sure. Um, so the third category, and we're almost done with all this, is, um, you know, how do you keep up with inflation while you're maintaining low risk and maintaining some decent liquidity? Um, a lot of people choose uh, money market accounts. I've chosen with U.S. Treasuries. And the reason why I've done that, and you don't really hear people talking about this very much, is money market accounts definitely have liquidity, or at least that's what they're marketed to have. Um, they have more liquidity than U.S. Treasuries in that, um, theoretically, you can pull your money out at any time. A treasury, you'd have to go resell on an open market. Um, but what I'm concerned about with money market accounts, which no one has talked about, is take a look at how the banks have failed. They basically had um, short-term obligations and long-term locked-in uh, investments, and they couldn't bridge the gap because interest rates went up, their long-term investments, their bonds went down, and they couldn't liquidate those for high enough value quickly enough. What happens when you invest in a money market fund that has uh, short, you know, relatively short-term investments. I don't know what those are. You'd have to research them. Some may be three months, six months, a year, whatever they are. And interest rates continue to go up. Those assets actually go down in value, just like the bank assets went down in value. And if there is, for some reason, a rush to get money out of the money market account with assets that are worth less at a time when interest rates are going up, assets are worth less, they're going to have the exact same liquidity problem that banks had. Now, um, do I really think that's going to happen? Is there going to be a big rush of people out of money market accounts or money market funds? Low probability, I think. But I think it's higher risk than U.S. Treasuries when you own a treasury directly yourself that you control and can just buy and sell. Uh, and of course, I have the same risk with U.S. Treasuries of the value going up and down. But I I can control owning very low uh, short-term treasuries, and I can also ladder them. So what I do is 
I buy treasury with three to four months uh, uh, remaining on them. And these, I actually just bought some this week and I think they were like a 5.32% yield. And um, what I've been doing since last summer is what's called laddering. So meaning that I actually buy treasuries every week or two. And then um, in order to have liquidity come up very often. So I did that for several months, got all my money working. And now I have treasuries coming up almost every week or two. And I can either take that liquidity in full and keep it in cash, or I can reinvest it into more treasuries, which is what I've chosen to do today. So instead of me having to go and like rush to the door and sell treasuries, if I need liquidity, usually I only have to wait a week or two and I have a pretty good chunk of treasuries coming due or to get that full liquidity without taking any loss, especially if they're worth less because uh, interest rates went up. Interestingly enough, if they went down, if interest rates go down, the treasuries become worth more and then I can actually proactively choose to sell or choose to take the liquidity early with the gain if I want to. So that's what I've chosen to do um, for, for myself for now. Keep in mind that treasuries are also state tax exempt. Sorry, they're, um, I, that's actually incorrect. I believe they're federally tax exempt. Sorry, they're either state or federally tax exempt. I always get it confused, but they're tax exempt from one or the other. And I can't recall which it is. So just a quick recap, and then we're going to get into some Q&A. Um, so... 2020 and 21 were the years of stimulus and tailwinds. 22 is a year of tightening and headwinds. Uh, 23 is a year of asset price decreases and a uh, possible, and I would say likely probable recession. Um, multiple interest rate increases, quantitative tightening, and an inverted yield curve will likely result in a recession during the second half of 2023, if not perhaps early in 24. That's from a probability perspective. But inflation is rampant. So as investors, we still need to deploy our capital to avoid falling behind due to inflation. Do not be stagnant right now, or you will fall behind, especially in this type of inflationary environment. So um, these are the solutions that I am doing myself. So again, use unique investments with unusual pricing or significant built-in equity up front to mitigate a possible reduction in asset prices coming up. Investments in which I don't have to worry about asset prices decreasing or short-term investments that have relatively low risk and have some good liquidity like treasuries. Um, this is James Kandasamy. Thank you for listening to this podcast. I appreciate you. I know I provide a lot of value through this podcast and I want you to share it with your friends, with your families and anybody else that you know that kind of benefit from listening to this kind of content. Go share it through Facebook, into LinkedIn, through Twitter, through Instagram or any other channels that you want to share it because sharing is caring. Thank you. Let's go on with the show. So, um, but the solution for you and not for me is to devise an investment that conforms to the current investment environment, but also makes sense for you and your comfort level, like we talked about at the beginning. And my investment types may not be a fit for you. These are just examples of what I'm doing, but make sure that you're not just listening to this and just doing that. You're actually doing whatever makes sense for you based on your own comfort level, strategy, et cetera. Um, and the right solution for you allows you to deploy your capital in the face of inflation with the possibility asset value decreasing and an upcoming recession. So just keep all that in mind. Um, so that's all I've got for everybody today, just in terms of food for thought. Hopefully this was helpful. Um, you've got my email on that slide. You're welcome to reach out to me anytime for any reason. Happy to help. Um, and we can go on to the Q&A, James, if you'd like. Yeah, let's do that. So we'll be ending the webinar exactly at 8 o'clock central. So let's go to Q&A. So can you recommend some sources to get news that are more rational than mainstream TRP rating bus based bus? Um, I'll, I'll just uh, I'll mention a few um, sources that I use right now real quick. 
first one that I like, um, but just be very careful. It has a very negative slant. You have to kind of have to, there's a lot of conspiracy theory stuff on it. It's by Wall Street guys. They started in 2009 after the last downturn, just to try to get out of the weeds of the media and help people learn what's going on with the real data. It's called zerohedge.com. So zerohedge.com. Um, again, a lot of conspiracy theory stuff, but if you just keep to reading only the data, the Wall Street you know, articles, et cetera, they tend to be quite good and tend to help you to understand in advance what might be coming up. Another one that I really like, well, we talked about shadowstats.com to see the real inflation data. And another one I really like, just for pure data, not much commentary, not too much of a bias either way, um, is calculatedriskblog.com. So calculatedriskblog.com. They tend to just take government release data, put it into charts, look at all the historical charts. So if you want to like see CPI for the last few years and just look at it on a chart and see it without too much commentary and not have to read about opinions about it, it's a really good place to go. They tend to archive a lot of charts that they track themselves. Okay, the next question is, do you, if you want to educate yourself on microeconomics, can you recommend some books or courses? Boy, um, that's a good question. I do not have specific courses or books. Um, and what I would say is, um, I'm going to rattle off a couple of good YouTube channels, I think, but they're more slanted towards real estate, but definitely discuss a lot about the economy at the same time. Um, so one of them, um, so some of you might be familiar with Ken McElroy. He's a well-known multifamily investor. Um, he's been investing over 20 years. He has a really good YouTube channel. I think he keeps a very level head and is very honest about his opinions. And he also follows the economy. Um, another is um, um, James Eng, uh, E-N-G. Um, he is a partner at the largest multifamily mortgage broker in Texas. And he has really great macro information and multifamily information on his YouTube channel. Those are two, two really good channels, somewhat for what you're asking, not perfect, but definitely some stuff to watch. I unfortunately don't really have any courses or anything specific on the macro side. I'm sorry. Yeah, I think I would recommend uh, Mastering the Market Cycle by Howard Marks. That's a really good book. It talks about how people behave during ups and downs of market and how to identify the uh, bottom of the market at the same time, identify the top of the market. It's all about human behaviors. And he yeah, really can I actually, James, let me throw one more in, but this is a very yeah. high level, but really good to understand high level cycles and stuff. Yeah. Um, Ray Dalio, he's been spending a lot of time. He, so Bridgewater, he founded Bridgewater, which is the largest hedge fund in the world. Um, he recently, I think, kind of semi-retired from it, but he spent a lot of time creating content recently and he wrote a couple of books as well. Uh, that talks about how cycles happen, how empires you know, uh, increase and fall, like the US dollar, a lot of really good stuff from a very high macro perspective. So on top of that, uh, do you think the US dollar is at risk not being a federal, I mean, a global currency? Well, reading Ray Dalio stuff is, is much, much better than my opinion. Um, I, will, <laughs> I will say this, that um, every empire falls, we're right about in the time of the cycle where that would be beginning. There's a lot of very specific events happening, wars, uh, arguments with China, Russia, et cetera, that are all signs that we're starting to decline. That that transition typically takes 10 to 20 years. It's a slow decline. Um, our debt levels are also a, a very red, a very big indicator that that's happening. Um, so we're going through the normal progress like of how an empire it grows and falls. It's all normal stuff. It's all happened many times before. So it's actually fairly predictable. Um, I do think that we're 
getting towards the tail end of that, um, it's impossible to know the timing. So if you ask me, I'd be surprised if in 30 or 40 years from now, we were still the reserve currency. But it's a question, is it going to be 10 years, 20 years, 30 years? I'm not sure. Got it. Next question is, I mean, I know we talked about multifamily, but so all your contacts on this presentation is just multifamily or just including other CRE asset class like hospitality, hotels, and other commercial? Yeah, good question. I kept it to multifamily for most of my thoughts today just to um, just to try to make it relevant for the audience because I know we were focused on multifamily. Yeah. Um, multi yeah. I, I would say this, revenues decline across most, if not all asset classes as a generalization, not just multifamily during a recession. So a lot of what we talked about applies to um, all the different asset classes, but each one will be impacted differently. A very quick example, um, retail, for example, which I have investments in, you know, you can argue that because of the internet and stuff, that took its real deep dive of value valuation and cap rates probably in 2015, 16, 17, and has been pretty stable since then. And is therefore, because it's been less volatile in the past few years and hasn't had the run up, it's less likely to have major run down at the same time too, right? So each yeah. asset class is going to have its unique properties. Yeah, I think the Green State published, right, saying that the office is one of the was performing asset plus right now just because of the work from home phenomena and also the banks are stopping to land and that might cause a domino effect to the office sector. Yeah. Correct. So uh, what about single family homes? What do you think is going to happen? So single family homes are actually also very predictable in terms of affordability levels. You reach an affordability peak. If there's a lot of data behind what you can research to see when we hit a peak, I can speak to California because I live here and I track this. In California, based off historical cycles, we peaked at a 17% affordability in 2022. That's normally the final peaking point. That's actually the exact peaking point. We hit that exact number. Um, so the peak in California was last year. Um, I, I think that the, well, we've already had some price adjustment here. Theoretically, prices should reduce in the next 18 months or so, but probably less so than a normal downturn because of the fact that there's a lot of people locked into their interest rates from a supply perspective. And so what, what has to happen in order for a cycle to reset is for affordability to reset. But if affordability can't reset because we're not going to have enough supply side to bring the prices down as much as normal, then the way that that occurs as an alternative is for prices to go sideways for many years so that um, wages and inflation catch up with the affordability. And that's more likely the, the more likely more probable scenario right now for this cycle. Um, so um, probably a little bit more decrease in price in the next year or so during this recession, et cetera, and then sideways for longer in order for the affordability to reset and for uh, inflation and stuff to erode the value of the properties enough to, to, to reach the equilibrium for affordability. Yeah, I mean, I'm gonna select. We have six more minutes. I'm gonna start selecting some questions, and we'll we ask we can we can go over a couple minutes. I just unfortunately I have an event that I have to be at very well, shortly. No, no, so we really yeah. appreciate you coming and sharing. How do you track all your investments since you have like around sixty different passive investments? Yeah, it's a very very boring answer. I have a very big spreadsheet that I have broken out <laughs> by month for projected cash flow. Every time I invest in something new, I add a row, I add it on, I add when the projected cash flow is going to come in. And I compare what I'm getting each quarter, whatever it is in cash flow, 
to what's expect what was projected just to see the variances. But it's really just a very rudimentary spreadsheet. There are definitely online tools and software that I've seen over time, especially in the last few years, there's been a few of them introduced that can help you to do that um, in probably a cleaner way, but it's not something that I do. So uh, what, so I think there's some recent Blackstone Bitcoin ETF news and do you invest in Bitcoin as well after this news? The only Bitcoin exposure I have is I, as a diversification, I thought Bitcoin was going to go down a couple of years ago, uh, but um, I thought it was like an end of cycle phenomenon, which is kind of what happened, but um, but I did actually decide to get some exposure in case I was wrong for diversification um, into Bitcoin mining because Bitcoin mining had less downside risk, but had less upside available as well. And so I, I am in a Bitcoin mining fund that's cash flowing right now, um, but um, I don't track Bitcoin very closely. And it was just a diversification measure for me. Got it. Uh, how do you hold ownership in your passive investments? Is it just like a simple passive investment ownership? Yeah, the, my ownership is held personally, um, so there's no LLC, et cetera. Um, we can get into this in more detail, but theoretically, if the LLC you're investing into is structured correctly, the legal documents are done correctly, you're typically limited to your original investment as far as no one can force you to put more money in in a typical correct structure. Um, and your liability is limited. Uh, the liability is all on the more active members, which are typically the general partners. So. Um, I've asked a lot of attorneys and accountants over the years. I've never found any benefit from what I can understand. And again, I'm not an accountant or attorney, but that's what I've concluded as to doing anything beyond just investing personally. So what type of IRA do you want to see before you start investing into multifamily? Yeah. So historically, uh, I'm a very big proponent of cash flow. So I focus a lot on cash flow. And what ends up happening is that based off the cash flow levels I typically target, in the past, I've been able to back into about a 15% IRR, give or take, and the stuff that I typically invest in. The challenge with that question right now is that we're having an end of cycle reset. And so you really won't know what the new cycle will bring until it starts, and realistically. So I can't give you a good idea of what that's going to look like in the next 12 to 24 months in terms of answering a more current up-to-date answer, because that's going to be dictated by the market and what I can find as an investor. Yeah. Next question is, uh, how would your investing strategy change this year if you had a large capital gains event that could be offset by bonus depreciation? Yeah, very good question. Um, I think that um, I don't like investing for tax benefits as a strategy because then what I'm doing is I might be going outside of my typical, more predictable cash flow box to try to find something to make it work. So I'm not a good person to be giving an answer for this because it doesn't normally, I don't normally, I, I would try to find stuff that does make sense from a, in terms of more bonus appreciation, et cetera, but I would still pay the tax if I couldn't find the right investment versus like making a mistake with the wrong type of investment. Because let's be clear, you can get bonus depreciation in a deal, but if that deal goes to zero, you've lost money, right? You've actually deferred some taxes for a period of time, but the overall outcome was no good. So I would caution people to be very careful investing just for tax benefits, especially if it's conforming outside of um, your general risk profile and or if it's kind of being forced. Got it. Uh, how long do you expect cap rates to continue to increase? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, it really depends on how what the recession looks like, how scared people get, how bad we have of a downturn. Um, there's a lot of factors, um, but it wouldn't surprise me if cap rates stabilized. Uh, so I would expect probably in about 12 to 24 months, we might see cap rates 
stabilize. I'm not saying they're going to start to, you know, get better at that point in terms of values going up or anything, but I could see us stabilizing in the 12 to 24 month period. Got it. Uh, next question. Recession is somewhat tricky to generalize. That will cause rent to go down. What was average drop in GDP that data showed drop in rents? Yeah, I don't have any data handy to be able to tie GDP to property values or to rents. And also keep in mind, it totally depends on your location, um, your type of asset, uh, your rent levels, et cetera. So um, I don't have very specifics like data I can just refer to here right now quickly. But just keep in mind that as a high level perspective, directionally, rents go down during a recession. And therefore, when rents go down in an inflationary period, when expenses are still going up, you should expect a reduction in net operating income and reduction in value of a property. Got it. Uh, last one, what would happen to deep value at deals that were purchased in 2022 on a bridge loans where today they're still able to get 20% rent bump for renovated products if they can manage the expenses and if the operator is uh, able, uh, they're able to survive, what do you think? Yeah, so um, I did not invest in any floating rate bridge loan deals, so I'm not the right person to answer this, but I have asked some people about that type of question. And here's my understanding. Um, first things to understand, your 20% rent bumps in 2023 that you're referring to, they're about to potentially go in the wrong direction because of recession. So it's not just about what will happen this year, like right now, what you're able to get today. It's about what will happen in the next six to 12 months while you're completing your value add project. And then what happens to cap rates at the same time um, on the multiple you're going to get from the, from the property. So there's a lot of factors at play. It's not just about what rents you're seeing today. It's about when you're going to sell that property, how does that entire picture look? And right now, that picture is facing tremendous headwinds from a probability perspective, right? Because probability is we're going to have recessions, rents are going to go down, NOI is going to go down. At the same time, cap rates are going to go up, and you're going to have that compounding effect of the value of the building going down. Will your rents be enough to offset that? Obviously, it's on a case-by-case -case basis. So you'd have to take a look at um, a lot of factors there. Yeah, the other thing I realized is, uh, I mean, the, the, you can go 20, 30% rent bump, but your interest rate has wiped off your rent bump, right? Because, you know, unless you have a, you have to go into a fixed rate loan and, and you have a long loan term, you know, if you're on a bridge loan and if your, you know, rate cap is expiring or your bridge expiring and you can't really refinance into a fixed rate product, your rent bump doesn't make any difference, right? Because your interest rate is, is higher right now. It has wiped off your all your rent increases. Right, and that and that's just something I, I forgot to mention is that, you know, I was told that generally speaking, the um, shock from the degree of interest rate increase compared to anything prior to, to March of 2022 was so dramatic that it's almost impossible to make up for it on rent increases. Now, the reason why I didn't mention that is because the scenario that person just mentioned was someone who got a bridge loan in 2022. And if they did it a little bit of the ways in where there was already some adjustment in pricing, that might be a slightly different scenario than the worst case scenario pre-March 2022, but we don't know. So yeah, got it. And uh, last question, single family peaking metric of 70% if there are a lot of international buyers coming in and dumping in money, does the metric still hold good? For example, Miami has investors mostly from outside of Miami. It has been unaffordable for locals too. For yeah. a long time, yet prices keep going up. Yeah, that's a great question. Every market's different. So um, I'm giving you a generalization. Each market has its own quirks. Um, I'll tell you this, though. 
there's always international money coming in until there isn't. Like last year, all I was hearing in the year before is that, oh, we may have, you know, things may slow down, but there's so much liquidity and so much money, prices are never going to go down. Okay. That's what people, people get saying. And my answer was, there's always a lot of liquidity until there isn't because of an event. And that's now it's happened, right? That event has happened. The same reason why international money had, comes in cycles and comes and goes and it stops. And that's because of either recession in their country, recession in this country, et cetera. So that liquidity will change. And so I would still be very careful to, to think that prices, prices don't go up forever. If you believe cycles are finished and the cycles no longer exist, then your theory is probably correct. But if you believe cycles still exist, then the answer is international money will not offset a cycle and continue prices going up. That's, it's, there's not enough international money coming in and it stops and has its own cycle of money coming in and coming out from an international perspective. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jeremy, for coming and sharing your knowledge. And I think thanks for, we have gone more than four minutes into, you know, whatever time later, but thank you so much. And thanks for all the audience who have been staying and listening to Jeremy and myself. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. That's it for this episode. If you'd like to learn even more, check out James's free audiobook. It's the audio version of his best-selling book on passive investing. You can get the audiobook completely free, along with other valuable resources, by visiting www.achieveinvestmentgroup.com forward slash free audiobook. Also, be sure to join our Facebook group too. To find it, just do a Facebook search for Multifamily Investors Group. Thanks for listening. Join us again for another episode next week. See you then.